Well, good morning once again. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 18? 1 Samuel, chapter 18. Now, when we started the book of 1 Samuel, we said at that time that both 1 and 2 Samuel were really books about leadership. And since Paul the Apostle said that the things in the Old Testament were written for our learning, the thing we can learn primarily from the history of Israel is that in the absence of godly leadership, a nation will suffer and decline, whereas in the presence of godly leadership, it will prosper and be strengthened. Or to put it another way, as leaders go, so goes a nation. Now, one of the problems endemic to leadership is pride. Pride. Not all leaders are controlled by pride, of course, but many are. Uh, you see, the idea of being an authority over others and the power, the prestige, and other benefits that come along with it, well, that does appeal to those who are driven by pride and avarice. And as such, these kinds of people are drawn to certain professions where they can control and take advantage of others. So often they become politicians, police officers, and even pastors. Now, by saying this, I'm not intending to uh, paint these professions with a broad brush and basically accusing everyone in them as being prideful and corrupt. I've included pastors in that category, so it's not that way. I know that there are many wonderful politicians and police officers and pastors that are good-hearted people that want to just bless and help others. That's true. I'm just saying, though, that there are certain professions that attract people that are obsessed with a desire for power and control of others. You know, a few days ago, I watched a special on Drew Peterson. And uh, Drew Peterson is a retired Bolingbrook police sergeant. And while he was still working for the Bolingbrook Police Department and married to his fourth wife, uh, he was accused of killing his third wife, Kathleen. Originally, it was thought that she had uh, fallen in the bathtub, hit her head, and drowned. But the authorities took a second look at her death when Peterson's fourth wife, Stacy, mysteriously disappeared in October of 07. At that point, many started to believe that Drew Peterson had killed both Kathleen and Stacy. In the special I was watching, the thing that was so disturbing was how callous and flippant Mr. Peterson was during the aftermath of Stacy's disappearance and during the murder trial of his third wife, Kathleen, a trial that eventually ended with his conviction on the murder charges. But it seemed to Mr. Peterson, as I looked at this guy, the whole thing was a big joke, a big joke. And he sees the opportunity to grandstand, make jokes, and basically to get his face in front of as many cameras as possible. They even interviewed his pastor at one point, and uh, they asked the pastor, do you think he killed his third wife? He says, absolutely. He said, Drew Peterson told me one time, I've done a lot of bad things in my life, but I've never felt bad about anything I've done. Get thee behind me, Satan. Drew Peterson is what psychiatrists call a psychopath. A psychopath. A psychopath is somebody who is morally bankrupt and does whatever they want, especially, listen, if it will benefit them in some way. This kind of person believes that rules don't apply to them. They're above the law. And as such, they have absolutely no remorse for whatever they do to others because at the end of the day, no one matters but them. They will do whatever it takes to make themselves happy and advance their objectives in life, and they feel completely justified in destroying anybody who gets in their way. Now, that profile seems to fit King Saul. 
It seems to fit King Saul. Saul was a man who was totally self-absorbed and driven by pride. Um, I don't know if he fits the category of a true psychopath, but possibly. He was a narcissist at the very least. But he was a man driven by pride. In fact, as we back up a little bit, uh, we studied first part of chapter 18 last week. Let's back up to verse 5. I want to show you what I mean. We read, So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now what happened is they were coming home uh, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourine, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. <laughs> then Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David, the Hebrews eyed him suspiciously from that day forward. You see, Saul was a true narcissist. And he was a man filled with pride. And you know, if you're a narcissist and filled with pride, and of course all narcissists are, uh, you don't want anybody getting more glory, recognition, and honor than yourself. So at this point, Saul began to see David as a rival, an enemy, someone that was going to take glory and power away from him, and therefore somebody that needed to be eliminated. We even read in verse 11 how that Saul threw a spear a couple of times at David. Well, David was, was playing the harp, trying to soothe Saul because he was tormented by an evil spirit. And as David's playing his harp to soothe Saul, on two different occasions, Saul took a spear and threw it at David to pin him to the wall, right? But if he missed and shot him through the heart, well, sorry, didn't mean to do that kind of thing, right? Um, it goes on to say, though, as we progress in the narrative, that Saul became more and more paranoid of David and obsessed with killing him. He even started to think of creative ways to get rid of David, using even his own daughters to destroy David. Verse 17, Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merib. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. You see, Saul figured out that because everybody in Israel loved David, Saul didn't want to kill David himself because that would have caused everyone to turn on Saul and to hate him. And again, if you're a narcissist, you can't have people hating you. Everyone's got to love you. So he decided, well, I'll let the Philistines do my dirty work. Verse 18, so David said to Saul, who am I and what is my life for my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? But it happened at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David that she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, as a wife. So Saul was a liar. It was not a man of his word. He promised Merib to David as wife and then gave her to another man. Verse 20, now Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul said, I will give her to him, that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Look, Saul knew his daughter, Michal, and believed that she was the kind of person that could be used in some way to bring David down. We're not told how, uh, but Saul knew his, the character of his daughter, and 
he saw in her something that he knew that you know could be used to bring David down. Whether she was a very worldly gal, whether she was uh, given over to a desire for for riches and would bring David down that way, constantly demanding him to provide for her greater and greater things. We don't know. We do know she was not really a spiritual gal, because later on we're going to read when David was bringing the ark of the covenant back to Jerusalem. Remember how he was dancing and twirling and all a big celebration and parade and all and she made fun out of him she condemned him so she wasn't a very spiritual gal and maybe that's what Saul was picking <laughs> the you know the apple didn't fall far from the tree with her father she was probably like Saul okay but once again Saul was not above u- using his own flesh and blood to destroy David latter part of verse 21 therefore Saul said to David a second time you shall be my son-in-law today And Saul commanded his servants, communicate with David secretly and say, Look, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke those words in the hearing of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a light thing to be the king's son-in-law, seeing I am a poor and lightly esteemed man? In other words, I have no dowry to give the king for his daughter. I'm a poor man. I come from a poor family. We don't have that kind of money. I'm not a wealthy or an esteemed man. Verse 24. And the servants of Saul told him, saying, In this manner David spoke. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry, but one hundred foreskins of the Philistines, to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So Saul reasoned, Look, if David, I sent him out to battle, to get these foreskins so he can have my daughter as a wife. Uh, if he's killed in battle with the Philistines, so be it, he's gone. If he survives but loses the battle, well, his popularity will be diminished or destroyed in the eyes of the people. Either way, he's done. What Saul didn't understand was that God was with David in a very powerful way. God's spirit was on David. We already read about this. And Saul's plan backfired in that God, by God's grace, David won all the battles. All the battles. Instead of eliminating David or diminishing him, his popularity in the eyes of the people, what Saul did was he made him more popular, more loved, and more of a hero in the eyes of the people of Israel. In other words, what Saul intended for evil, God used for good. Now, hang on to that thought. It really is at the heart of this whole message. Okay, what Saul intended for evil, God used for good. But notice, guys, God only turned what Saul intended for evil into good in David's life because, listen, because of David's attitude toward the situation. Verse 26, so when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. One pastor said this of David. Don't miss this. He said, and I quote, David had a humble heart. Many men would say, dowry? (laughs) You want a dowry? You promised to give your daughter to the man who killed Goliath. You want to see my dowry? Look at the 10-foot grave in the valley of Elah. That's enough of a dowry. I demand my rights. But David humbly agreed to Saul's demand for a dowry. David answers Saul's attempt at manipulation by taking control of the situation and being a humble servant 
and by giving more than what was required of him, end quote. Well, verse 27, 1 Samuel 18, Therefore David arose and went, and he and his men, and killed 200 men of the Philistines. So, you know, Saul wanted 100 foreskins of the Philistines. David said, well, you know, I'll double it. I will kill 200 Philistines. And David brought their foreskins and gave them in full count to the king. Do you like that job? Gave them in full count to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave Michal his daughter as a wife to David. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war. And so it was whenever they went out that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul so that his name became highly esteemed. And once again, guys, it's interesting that uh, what others mean for evil against us, God can and often does use for good if we will trust him, look to him, and not seek to retaliate against those who do us wrong. Now, for the remainder of this message this morning, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. And I want to look at something Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that dovetails with what we've been talking about in 1 Samuel 18. Matthew 5, starting in verse 38. Jesus is talking to his disciples, not to the multitudes in general. He's talking to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, verse 38. He said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, that was the law of God. And that spoke of getting even with somebody who hurt you. That spoke of retaliation. It spoke of revenge. Somebody uh, pokes your eye out in a fight, you need to poke their eye out. That's just what the law said. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that was getting even. That was retaliating against those who did you wrong. Verse 39, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Now, there are many who believe that Jesus is advocating absolute pacifism here. But remember, this is the same Jesus that cleansed the temple. Okay, He pushed over the tables of the money changers. He took a whip and drove all the merchants out, right? Jesus Christ was no pacifist, and neither is he advocating pacifism here. You have to understand the word resist means to set against. Evil person refers to one who opposes or wrongs you. So the Lord is saying, don't set yourself against one who wrongs you, or in other words, don't seek revenge when someone violates your rights. Don't seek revenge when someone violates your rights. Then Jesus gives four examples of how and in what circumstances this principle is to be applied in our lives. First of all, don't retaliate when someone degrades you. Verse 39, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek to him also. Many interpret this literally, and they believe what Jesus was saying is, look, if somebody comes up to you and wants to pick a fight, 
and they take their fist and they smash you in the mouth on your right side, go ahead and just turn your head and say, hit me again. That's what Jesus wants. Just go ahead and nail me again. That would be pretty stupid. Okay? Jesus never taught or advocated anything stupid. So that must be the wrong interpretation. Okay? What Jesus was doing was he was using it to illustrate what our response should be, listen, towards someone who puts us down by violating our dignity. You say, what do you mean? Well, most people in the world are right-handed. They're right-handed. And so for a person to slap you on your right cheek with their right hand would mean they would have to slap you with the back of their hand. They would have to slap you with the back of their hand. You have to understand that Jews felt that the most demeaning and degrading thing anyone could ever do to them was to slap them in the face with the back of their hand. That was something slave owners did to their slaves as a show of contempt. So Jesus is saying, when your dignity is taken from you and you're dishonored, degraded, and humiliated, turn the other cheek. Don't retaliate and don't respond with vengeance and evil. Well, didn't Paul say this pretty clearly in Romans 12 when he said, Never pay back evil with more evil. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. So don't retaliate when someone degrades you. Number two, don't retaliate when somebody falsely accuses you. Verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Now, the implication is you're being accused of something you did not do. That's the implication. That you're being sued unjustly. That this person is dragging you into court and is suing you for your tunic. What is a tunic? A tunic was a long shirt-like garment that was worn closest to the body and extended all the way down to your ankles, basically. Over the tunic or shirt was then worn a cloak or what was sometimes called a coat. It was the outer garment. Now, Jewish law said that you could not sue a person for their cloak or their outer garment. That was unlawful. Why? Because they needed it at night to cover themselves while they slept. That's what they would do with it. And therefore, they would have no protection against the cold. And God said, that's unacceptable to me. So therefore, God said, I forbid you to sue somebody to take away their cloak, their outer garment, since it is their, is their source of warmth at night. The law did not say, though, that they couldn't sue each other for the tunic or the shirt underneath the cloak. He said, well, why would somebody want to sue somebody for a shirt? I mean, it's practically worthless. That was the idea. We're talking about a person who was so poor that all they basically owned was the shirt on their back and someone so cruel and so um, heartless they were going to sue them to take even that away from them. Jesus is saying, if someone sues you and takes away your shirt, so... They take it to court, you're innocent, you haven't done anything really wrong to them, but they think you have, they sue you, they win. They take your shirt. The judge says, you have to give that person your shirt. Jesus said, if that happens, don't begrudge him, don't seek revenge, don't be bitter, but instead show him that you really didn't intend to do anything to hurt him. You, you're innocent. And to prove that, go ahead and give him your cloak also as a way to show him, look, I'm innocent. Okay, you think I've done this, I've lost in court, 
Here's my shirt. That's what the law is demanding of me. But I'm going to give you my outer garment also. Even though it's not lawful, you don't, you're, it's not lawful for you to take it from me. I'm going to give it to you to prove to you that I am innocent and did you no wrong. In other words, guys, your witness is more important than your comfort. Your witness is more important than your comfort. Yes, he was going to be cold that night, but at least he proved as a Christian that he was not guilty of, of wronging anybody, especially this person that had sued him. Number three, don't retaliate or seek revenge when somebody takes advantage of you. Verse 41, and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, Roman law said that a Roman soldier could compel you to carry his gear a mile. And, and here's the way it worked. You're out with some friends, okay, just enjoying a nice evening out. Maybe you're getting a falafel and a Coke somewhere, just talking, you know, having a good time with buddies. All of a sudden, you feel the flat part of a sword on your shoulder. You look, and there's a Roman soldier. That's how they did it. If they put the flat part of their sword on your shoulder, they were compelling you to carry their gear a mile. You had no choice. Now, that was, of course, a very degrading imposition, okay, uh, as these soldiers would no doubt take advantage of everybody who would walk. I don't think a soldier, a Roman soldier, ever carried their gear anywhere as long as there was somebody else around that could carry it for them. It was a terrible imposition, degrading, to have to be forced to carry a soldier's gear a mile. However, instead of condemning the practice, Jesus said to his disciples, look, don't resist it. Go a second mile. Go a second mile. The law compels you to go one mile. Love should compel you to go the second mile. Listen, as a witness. As a witness, okay? In other words, if we only do what's required of us, we don't do any more than any unbeliever. I can imagine what a witness this would be to a Roman soldier who is used to compelling people to carry his gear a mile. And after you finish the mile, the soldier would say, okay, give me the gear back. And a person said, well, no, I'll carry it for you a second mile. A second? Why? Because I'm a Christian. And the Lord has told me that you know, if I'm compelled to carry your gear a mile, I'm going to do it a second mile to show you that we're different, that we love you guys, you know? We want you to know our Savior. What a witness that would be, okay? If you only do what's required of you, you do no more than any unbeliever, Jesus is saying. You want to go beyond that, okay? And, and let me just say this. As a young person, that would apply, of course, to doing chores at home. Don't just do what you're told to do. Do more than that would, of course, apply to an adult uh, with your responsibilities at work. And, of course, it would even apply or certainly apply to uh, serving the Lord in ministry, that we always do more than what we're required to do. But listen to me. The context here wasn't to do this for someone you love like family or something you do for God in ministry. Uh, Jesus commanded it to be done for those you don't like. For someone who maybe is even your enemy, which of course in this context would be a hated Roman soldier. In other words, guys, instead of focusing on your rights and your dignity, focus on the lost soldier's eternity. That is the real issue. Love him and his salvation more than you love yourself and your dignity. It really isn't about us. The modern church has made everything about us. The modern church has made everything so man-centered that we are demanding our rights. 
We are demanding that people treat us a certain way. We're not willing to go the first mile, let alone the second. This is the tragedy in the church today. We have become so self-centered, we have not, we've stopped being Christ-centered. We're not picking up our crosses. I'm talking in general now. Certainly there are Christians who are still doing that. I'm just saying, though, that we have lost, it's not about us. That's what Jesus meant when he said, count the cost before you follow me. There's costs involved. Jesus was saying to his disciples, guys, I know it grates on you when a soldier puts a sword in your shoulder and demands you carry his gear a mile. Rejoice and see it as an opportunity to carry the second mile for a witness because you want to see this guy saved. And finally, number four, Jesus said, don't resist when someone needs to borrow from you. Verse 42, give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Now, for most of the Christians I have met, certainly the ones in this church, you guys are very generous. Um, I've seen this over and over over the years where um, you're helping somebody who's out of work, you're paying a mortgage payment or a car payment or utilities. They're often I'll come and uh, up to the podium and there's an envelope on the podium with somebody's name on it. I know it's got money in it, and I just uh, give it to them not knowing who gave it. This is a very generous church. You guys have always shown yourselves to be very generous. And I think with most of God's people, generosity is something that happens once you give your heart to Christ and the Spirit of God comes in. Because God's a very generous God too, right? And we are filled with the nature of God, Peter tells us. Therefore, you know, generosity is just part of that. Well, listen, for those Christians who still find themselves holding a little tightly onto the purse strings of their life, let me read you what God has said about helping those in need. Now, I'll have you turn to the first one, and then I'll read the other ones to you. But Deuteronomy chapter 15. Listen to how God feels about us helping the poor and disadvantaged. Deuteronomy 15, starting with verse 7. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren uh, within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his needs, whatever he needs. Verse 10. You shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him. So in other words, you know, if you're going to give to him, help him. Don't go, oh, i got to give to this guy, you know. I don't really want him, but God told me I have to, you know. That could, no. Uh, if you're going to help him, then, then do it willingly, you know. Because of this thing, the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and in all to which you put your hand. Because God is generous to the poor, gives to the poor. He wants us to do the same, and he often, of course, does it through his people, giving to those who are in need. I'll just read these to you. Psalm 37, verse 21. The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. James 2, verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Yeah, you come across uh, somebody in church, you know they're out of work, they have no food in the house, they, they tell you, yeah, we're just ran out of food yesterday, I don't know what's going to happen, and you tell them, well, you know, pat them on the back, say, you know, hope things work out for you, you know, pray for you on that one, and you leave and don't help them, James says, what kind of a Christian are you? How does that profit them by just telling them, hey, hope things work out? 
But how does it profit you in the sense that you grow as a Christian in the area of unselfishness? Proverbs 11, verses 24 and 5. There is one who scatters yet increases more, one who spreads his money around to help others and always seems to increase. And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. Now you say, well, most of those deal with helping a brother or sister, okay? Um, not really helping an enemy. Well, I'll have you turn to one more, Luke 6, verse 35. Jesus said, he said, though, verse 35, But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Now, guys, I believe this only applies to needs, that God uh, requires us to meet needs if we can. Can't meet everyone's needs. But we can certainly help those that God leads across our path. But notice I said needs, not wants. If somebody comes up to you and says, look, I want to take my family to Disney World on vacation. We're kind of short. Can you help us out? God is not saying you have to help them get to Disney World. Now, you may want to do that. They might be a wonderful family. They work hard. You know that. Uh, they really have always wanted to do this, and you want to help them to do that. Fine. You don't say you can't do it. I'm just saying you're not required to help somebody with a want, but we are required to help those that have a need, okay? Uh, but having said that, I need to balance this, as we have to with everything, by saying we shouldn't give to those who are lazy and refuse to work. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10. He said, For even when, you, when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, it's not saying if they can't work, if they're handicapped or, or sick. He's saying if they're healthy and refuse to work, then neither shall they eat. That's pretty straightforward, right? If somebody is just simply lazy, and you've even offered them a job, we'll say, and they say, nah, I really don't want to, you know. Uh, and then they're looking for food from the church. No, no. Paul says no. They go hungry. Now, you say, well, sometimes it's hard to know if someone has a legitimate need or if they're just being lazy and or irresponsible. How do I know in every situation? Well, you don't. You don't. Over the years, many people have called the church looking for assistance. Sometimes the stories are pretty obvious that they're just you know, looking to scam the church. But there's a lot of times I don't really know. I ask for some numbers, I call family members, I try to check out the story, and yet I still don't really know for sure. So you know what I do? I err on the side of grace. I just help them, okay? I just help them. And especially if there's children involved, I won't even hesitate to help. I don't even care if they're scamming me. If I know that they're trying to scam me, but there's kids involved, and the kids don't have food, we have done this many times. We'll go out shopping and bring food over. Because when there's kids involved, I don't care. But here, in those cases, guys, Remember this, if you do err on the side of grace and you help those that, you know, uh, are in need, look, you got to do it with the right heart. You, you can't do it begrudgingly because God loves a cheerful giver. And listen to this. If you do help somebody financially, don't hound them to pay it back, okay? Even if they say, it's just a loan until I get on my feet. You know what? In your mind, write it off as a gift, okay? If they pay you back, wonderful. 
Uh, a lot of times they, they mean well, but they, they can't. I don't, I don't ask them for it back. It's a gift in my mind. Uh, consider it a loan to the Lord. You say, what do you mean? Proverbs 19, verse 17, He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and God will pay back what he has given. I don't worry about it. If I can help somebody, I do it, I forget about it, and you know what? God always takes care of me and my family. Always has. He will bless those who are generous. He will always provide for those who help others. Always. He'll do that. Now look, we're done. Let me just bring this to a close. We're talking about not demanding our rights. Okay? Rights focus our attention on us. Mercy. That's what we're talking about here. Okay? Mercy focuses our attention on others, especially those who have hurt us, wronged us, or who have taken advantage of us in some way. Look, it's natural for the world to retaliate. Somebody does them wrong, I want to get even. That's the worldly mentality. I'm going to get even, I'm going to make them pay, I'm going to take revenge, and that kind of thing. It's just natural. But it takes a spirit-filled child of God to show mercy and loving kindness to those that have wronged them. Guys, don't miss this. The Sermon on the Mount was not given. Jesus did not preach that to the multitudes. He preached it to his disciples. There have been unbelievers that have read the Sermon on the Mount and said, this is a wonderful ethic for the whole world to live by. Baloney. Baloney. Unbelievers can't begin to live by the principles in the Sermon on the Mount because it takes the Spirit of God to be inside of you, giving you the strength to live a supernatural life that only God can live through you. But notice I said spirit-filled. Not every Christian is spirit-filled. So a lot of Christians who still walk in carnality and selfishness and, and the worldliness and so on. And if that's who you are, it's going to show up in the way you react to others when they wrong you. You're going to get even. David was spirit-filled. And that was how he treated Saul, with mercy, kindness, grace. Saul, who was out to get him, as we have seen so far, Saul was out, David knew it. Saul was out to get him. Yet David didn't retaliate. In fact, he went on serving Saul faithfully and did more than was, than was required of him. Saul asked him to do one thing. David went beyond it and did above and beyond what he was asked to do. And because of it, guys, God turned Saul's evil against David into good, and David's esteem in the eyes of the people rose higher and higher. That's the lesson I believe God wants us to take from the latter part of chapter 18 of 1 Samuel. Don't retaliate against those who do your harm. The title of this message I've taken from Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, Don't Resist an Evil Person. And now you know what we're talking about. Don't resist an evil person. Instead, use it as an opportunity to be a witness. All right? An opportunity to be a witness. In fact, guys, don't even run around defending yourself against those who speak evil against you. That's hard, isn't it? Somebody's out, you know, putting you down and, and, and talking against you. And you know it's lies. They might think it's the truth, but you know it's not true. Don't run around trying to defend yourself. My pastor taught me many years ago. I've never forgotten it. And I've applied it in my life in ministry. If you seek to defend yourself in the face of false accusations, guess what? God will allow you to defend yourself. But if you will look to God, give it to him, he will be your defender. In other words, time is a great revealer of truth. And by you just going forward, walking with the Lord, doing the work of God, God will bring the truth out eventually. Here's the thing. I always think of Nehemiah. 
when Sanballat and Tobiah, his enemies, were trying to, to uh, railroad him. And they, they, they said to him, one, his, Nehemiah was up on the wall, restoring the wall of Jerusalem. That's where they had come back, right? And he and all, the men were trying to rebuild this wall. And uh, Sanballat and Tobiah were the enemies, didn't want the wall rebuilt, didn't want the Jews to prosper. And so they came to Nehemiah one day as he's up on the wall and said, Look, uh, word on the street has it that you're out here just building this wall, so when you get it done, you can establish yourself as king. Now, we're going to go tell King, I forgot, was it Ahasuerus, well, you know, or I forgot, Xerxes, or one of those two. Uh, we're going to go tell the king your plans. What did Nehemiah do? He said, look, there's no truth in what you're saying, and I'm too busy doing the work of God to stop to deal with you guys. I'm just going to keep doing the work of God. I'll let God be, to be my defender. That's what we have. Satan wants to distract us, derail us, take our eyes off the work. God wants to use us and bless us, but not if we retaliate, get all angry and revengeful and start, uh, you know, demanding our rights kind of a thing. Guys, this is a supernatural message, and only those filled with the Spirit are going to even want to hear it, let alone try to live it. But I pray God will give us all grace to do that, especially as we're in the Christmas season great time to show mercy to those that have wronged us as jesus came down to show us mercy by being born and then going to the cross but may god give us grace that uh, we learn these lessons and by his strength apply them into our lives let's pray father we thank you for your great grace we thank you for your mercy your love your kindness lord we thank you that lord even when we deserved punishment you often show us mercy kindness grace forgiveness Father, give us the grace, the power, the strength of your spirit to treat others, enemies especially, this way. That we not seek to retaliate. Lord, that we just trust you. There are those who will set themselves against us unfairly, unjustly. Father, give us grace not to demand our rights or to seek to defend ourselves. But just keep serving you, keeping our eyes on you, letting you take care of it. Because, Lord, what they intend for evil, I believe you will turn around and use for good. It will just look to you and uh, let you handle it. So, Lord, thank you. Father, we ask that you would continue to bless our uh, time in these studies in 1 Samuel. And, Father, we pray that you would bless our week with health, safety, and productivity for us and our families. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.